You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. On our second message in this series, and I will be finishing off chapter one and beginning getting into chapter two. Imagine yourself in pitch darkness. A cave deep under the earth is one of the few places on earth where you can fully escape natural light. When I was in high school, my friends and I loved to retreat away out west, out west of Austin, Texas, at a place called Enchanted Rock. There, a large magma dome had risen from the arid wasteland that is West Texas that provide a perfect occasion for camping, for rock climbing, rappelling, and spelunking, otherwise known as caving. And I can still remember my first experience in this deep, dark cave, just exhilaration flowing through my veins as I was dared to turn off all flashlights and completely making my eyes useless as we trekked and crawled and meandered our way three hours worth of caves until we came to the lighted opening at the end. And I was grateful that others, more experienced cavers, had gone before us to mark the path. The scriptures tell us that men and women hate darkness, or hate the light, but actually love the darkness. In our text tonight from 1 John 1, we're reminded that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so if we would fellowship with God, we must walk in the light as he is in the light and put off the misdeeds of darkness. One to that end, please follow as I read 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, <clears throat> as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and we adore you. You are the light, and you have called us out of darkness to walk with you, to fellowship with you. And I pray that you would enrich in our understanding of what it means to live by faith, to walk with Jesus as you lead us through this dark land into the glorious light of eternity. Teach us, feed us, strengthen us, we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. God is love. That's a common message in today's culture, and it's also found in this first letter of John. But in this opening chapter, John begins with God is light. Well, what is light? Well, science tells us that light has properties of photons, little particles. It also has the property of waves, as energy bands extending out from the light source. Well, it seems that John uses the metaphor of light to describe a kind of supernatural light. Light here is the metaphor of truth and reality. We know that God does not consist of matter or energy. Rather, God is the source of all things, of life, light, truth, goodness, beauty, and wisdom. And in this metaphor, we are reminded that in God, there is no imperfection. God is perfect and pure. He is untainted by the things which we find ourselves tainted with in this life. I don't know about your house, but our home is a bit tainted. Raising small children armed with crayons and food and drink and all kinds of unmentionable things There's not one square inch of our home that's not tainted or smudged with dirt and grime and fingerprints and so forth. About a year ago, I installed a laminate flooring on my kitchen floor and in our entryway. Perfect and beautiful. Well, it didn't take long for that perfect laminate flooring to begin to develop a few dents and scratch marks and was no longer flawless. God is completely flawless. God in his perfection has nothing to hide. God has no shame, no doubts, no fears, no malformities. God is completely perfect and righteous in his character. He does not change like shifting shadows. By way of comparison, I understand that our sun has dark spots. The most radiant source of light in our world is our sun. Yet even the sun in all of its blinding light has little imperfections, spots of darkness. God has no darkness at all. In fact, darkness is something that God created because before the creation, there was no such thing as light or darkness. In fact, God called forth the light to repel the darkness. Isaiah 45, 7 says, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring forth prosperity and create disaster. You see, darkness is not the result of some cosmic chaos or some rivaling parties between the gods. Rather, darkness is a part of God's natural world order. And we're told in the Scriptures that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no darkness. There will be no more shadow. In fact, there will be no sun or moon because the radiance of God's glory will be our light, the source of vision and warmth. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, that he is the light of the world. He is the light that has penetrated the darkness. And he has called you and I as followers to be salt and light, to be his representatives in this world. 
and to be a preservative against a decaying culture. But our problem is that we are by nature darkness, alienated from God and under curse. And so John here would urge us to walk in the light by faith in Jesus Christ. Walking in the light means having a relationship with God. And of course, that relationship requires at least two things, the remission of our sins and the possession of genuine righteousness that God bestows upon us in Christ. Well, John addresses the first problem in verse 6 of of this letter by telling us that our sin mars or taints our fellowship with God. It seems that uh, the the false teachers of that day were communicating a kind of pre-Gnosticism, trying to convince the people of God that sin really didn't matter that what they did in the body had no consequence. And John has to correct them and say, no, sin does matter. And what you do in the body and in your mind and heart does affect your relationship with the living God. And so he says in verse 6, the first of these three, if we claim statements to challenge the pretense of these false teachers. Uh, Like them, as we sometimes hear in our own day, many may say that they know God, love God, believe in God. But the true test as to whether someone knows God is whether or not they live like a child of God. James, in his letter, says that we need good deeds to demonstrate that our faith is legitimate. And John here agrees. He says that we cannot claim to have fellowship with God if our lives are characterized by darkness. Because God, if we are in the light, as God is in the light, His light will scatter the darkness of our lives. So how is it that we can say we love God if we live with the misdeeds of darkness? You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot walk along the broad path and the narrow path at the same time. Christianity is an either-or commitment. There is no in-between. And John calls every pretender a liar who claims to know God but does not practice the truth. If you say that you're a Phillies fan, but you could care less whether or not the Phillies make it as in a repeat run of the World Series, you're not really a Phillies fan. If you say that, or if you're sick and you say that you want to get well, but you refuse to cooperate with your doctor's sound advice, you're really not committed to getting well. If you say that you love somebody, but you do not come to their aid when they are hurt or in need, you really don't love that person. See, our actions speak louder than our words. And so we must let our words be few and let our actions speak on our behalf, letting others make a judgment as to whether our words be proved by the way we live. In verse 7, John goes on to explain that to truly walk 
in fellowship with God means that we will be in fellowship with other believers. The company we keep, we keep reveals the deepest loyalties of our hearts. Are you for the world or for God's kingdom? Are you living and rubbing shoulders with the city of man? Or are you committed in following the city of God? My wife and I have extended family members who claim to be Christians and yet have no regular fellowship with other believers. They read Christian materials, they listen to Christian messages, but they refuse to participate in corporate worship in any kind of church. It would seem that their commitment to individualism trumps their call to participate in biblical Christian community. Such people use religion to meet their personal needs while refusing to give up their own autonomy. They treat church like the department store, coming and going as they please and only when there is a good sale. Now, I don't really know whether these family members are genuine Christians. It's not my place to judge their hearts, yet the scriptures make it clear that Jesus expects of us to remain with the family of God. Just as we might call somebody who drifts away from the family a black sheep, so in God's kingdom, such a one is a lost sheep. We are called to dwell in community with those who have God as Father. You know, teenagers and youth and young adults are oftentimes notorious for missing regular fellowship with God's people. Parents of teenagers oftentimes struggle to keep their kids involved in church, and Pastor Troy and the youth staff do a marvelous job of providing a wonderful and attractive ministry for our young people here. But I know that our our college students tend to go away to school, and they struggle. They struggle to maintain regular fellowship and worship with uh, God's people as they are out of their parents' home and in the world of sorts. And I've been glad to hear of recent that many of our college students love to come back here on break to worship in their home church. But nonetheless, many of them fall into the slumber of the world, drifting aimlessly, flirting with the darkness, being tempted to compromise their faith. And so we must pray for them to persevere. And we must demonstrate for them the riches of fellowship with God's people, where we provide genuine care and service to one another. Walking in the light also means that we are pure. Jesus, or John is bold to say that the blood of Jesus, who is unmistakably the Son of God, cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. You recall that in the Old Testament, the entire priestly sacrificial system was obsessed with a kind of ceremonial cleanliness. All throughout the Old Testament, we have commands and regulations and orders about being clean. In fact, you look at the, the Jewish people, it was, became their obsession to wash themselves repeatedly, to continually offer up sacrifices for their own purity, to avoid any unclean 
thing so they can remain pure and presentable before a holy God. And when Jesus came on the scene, he wiped the slate clean. He did away with all the rules and rituals and regulations. Jesus has become our purity. He has become our cleanliness by offering up himself as one final sacrifice for our sins. My wife and I tease each other about the fact that we're both clean freaks. We're a bit obsessive about keeping our home clean, which is a challenge with lots of children at home that thankfully I think we're mellowing out a bit about keeping the house clean. But recently we bought a new vacuum cleaner, an exciting purchase in our home. It's time to retire our eight-year-old Hoover that uh, had seen better days. So we went out, we bought a Dyson. The the no-bag, the container, the patented uh, cyclone technology that comes with a five-year warranty. Five-year warranty. A vacuum cleaner. Isn't that amazing? Well, we just thoroughly enjoyed watching the Sears salesman just demonstrate the power and the elegance of these machines. And we just couldn't wait to bring this thing home. And we had already vacuumed with our old vac. And this Dyson just, I mean, it cleaned house. I mean, it pulled up dirt and grime and old carpet downstairs. And we had to keep going back to the trash can, dumping all the, the filth inside that container. And it clearly demonstrated how inadequate our old vacuum cleaner was. Likewise, the blood of Jesus demonstrates for us how inadequate man-made religion is in cleansing us from our sin. You see, man-made religion is like a weak vacuum cleaner that only makes the appearance of cleanliness along the surface of the rug or the floor, but fails to dig up the dirt and the grime that lies deep underneath the surface. Only the gospel can make you and I clean. In Christ, God not only forgives us, but he erases the stain of our sin. About a year or so ago, we bought one of those miracle carpet cleaning products. I think it's called Extreme. And it's miraculous. It just, you shoot it on the spots and they just kind of come off. Well, likewise, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all of our spots, takes away all of our taintedness, our uncleanliness. It expiates us, making us clean and pure in his sight. Now, I would reckon that even if we still had a few spots in our home, it would not prevent you from coming into our home for fellowship. We try to keep it presentable but a few spots here and there would not hinder us from enjoying fellowship. But with God, we can't have fellowship if we are tainted and spotted. You see, because God is so holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so he has provided a way of cleanliness. He has provided in Christ Jesus a way for us to walk in the light by faith in his precious blood that cleanses us and restores us into fellowship with himself. 
I heard a story recently about a Christian couple, husband and wife, who during their engagement, their months of engagement before marriage, sadly the wife, the woman was unfaithful to her fiancé with several men. But she didn't tell him out of fear that he would reject her. And she didn't want to lose him. So they married. And they raised a family together. But to the husband, nothing ever seemed quite right. He and his wife just didn't quite connect. And so after 20 years of marriage, she finally broke down and confessed to him her sin. There in their months of engagement. And understandably so, he was devastated. And he left. And she was absolutely terrified, afraid that she would never see him ever again. Well, a few hours later, he returned, and she was a basket case and sobbing and crying. And he took her upstairs into the bedroom, had her undress, and out of a bag, he pulled out a newly purchased nightgown, pure white and had her clothed in that nightgown and looked her in the eye and told her I choose to see you washed and clean by the precious blood of Christ you see like this woman we are afraid we are very much afraid that our sin will keep us from intimacy with God that somehow that we've finally done it this time, that God will reject us, that he will abandon us because of our sin, the sin of our past and our ongoing struggle with sin. We struggle to keep ourselves clean and pure. But in Jesus Christ, we have one who has made us clean, whose blood is sufficient to keep us pure and undefiled and precious in the sight of God. We've considered walking in the light in terms of our relationship with God, intimacy with God. Well, we go on to explore a little more deeply what it means, how this relationship is established. We need to understand that we must have remission of our sins and true reconciliation with God. The state of the walk in the light requires the remission and the covering of our sins. Verse 8, John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 8 very clearly discounts any notion that John teaches some kind of sinless perfectionism. Not one of us is without sin. Only Jesus was sinless. But the sad truth is that most people are deceived about their own sin nature. Non-believers live in denial, refusing to admit they're sinners. They get defensive or perhaps are determined to preserve their own inflated view of themselves. And unfortunately, many Christians are not much better. Yes, as Christians, we may say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. But when it comes to actual recognition and confession of sin, many of us have little better than a shallow understanding of the depths of our depravity. I think this is in large measure due to cultural 
influence. We live in a day and age in which modern psychology and education have declared a war against sin, undergirding the self-esteem movement. We're bombarded with messages, stroking our egos, telling us constantly about our own inherent goodness. And sadly, this message has infiltrated much of contemporary preaching. With this emphasis on just positive thinking, self-improvement, while neglecting the cross and the real need for redemption in Christ. We see this in the health and wealth prosperity gospel. We see it in the rising emerging church gospel, (coughs) which is nothing better in many ways than a new social gospel that focuses on good works but abandons the historic claims of the cross, of justification by faith of Christ. Recently, I've started reading one of Jerry Bridges' newer books called Respectable Sins. Excuse me. (coughs) In this book, Jerry Bridges sets out to challenge Christians to take seriously some very commonly overlooked sins. Things like anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, sense of pride like self-righteousness and self-pity, selfishness, a lack of self-control with food and money, impatience, sins of anger like resentment and bitterness, judgmentalism, envy and jealousy, sins of the tongue, gossip, lying and slander. These are the sins that we tolerate. These are the white-collar crimes that we politely dismiss. You know, evangelicals, I believe, in our culture are caricatured by our firm stance against abortion and homosexuality, and rightly so. But God's Word would call us to examine our affairs closer at home to revive the biblical notion of the sinfulness of sin, to ask God to search our hearts that we might humbly repent before him. Of course, others will criticize us as exercising morbid introspection and having a pessimistic view of human nature. But it's equally true that a failure to recognize the depths of our sin robs us of the joy of knowing the magnitude of God's grace for us in Christ Jesus. And so John goes on in verse 9 to challenge us to put away self-deception and to put on confession. He woos us with the promise of God based upon God's faithful and righteous character that God will indeed forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, the hope of the gospel is that I am declared justified, that I am exonerated of my crimes, that my record is clear by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And of course, the gospel doesn't end at justification. It goes on. If we're to walk in the light and fellowship with God, we must be sanctified. God has and continues to cleanse us, to remove the dross, that we might be pure and undefiled. Why? So that our relationship will not be hindered by the ongoing presence of sin 
The time is coming when we will be in glory. And we will be removed from the presence of sin forever. But until that time, Christ's blood is sufficient to keep us pure and unspotted, teaching us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to confess our sins and renew our fellowship with the living God. And good to note that this is not just a New Testament concept. It's clear in the Old Testament as well. Here are David's writings in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Proverbs 28:13 adds, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Confession leads to freedom and renewed fellowship with our loving Heavenly Father. Well, because our fellowship with God is so vital, we must take sin seriously. Sin is a big deal. We must exert ourselves and utilize every resource available to avoid sin, to kill sin, to hate sin, to minimize its destructive power in our lives, to consider sin like a toxic waste dump, to stay away from it as far as possible. We must avoid sin firstly because it displeases God. And the more we grow in fellowship with God, we must realize how deeply our sin hurts our relationship with God. Our sin dehumanizes us. It's a fraud that denies the goodness of God's creation, denies the grace of God's redemption. So we must not have a laissez-faire attitude towards sin. You must never justify your sin under the premise that God will forgive you. That is to presume upon God's grace. The attitude that says, sin now and ask forgiveness later, is not befitting a child of God. We're to be stern with ourselves, to tame our passions, to struggle with the Holy Spirit to subdue our flesh, that our lives may become a clear reflection of the glory of God. And if you're like me, you can tremble and quake at such a requirement, knowing how hard that standard is to keep up the fight against sin. And if we would av- avoid a obsessive despair over ongoing sin, we must not neglect the gospel message. You see, Judaism, Islam, and all other religions of the world are basic moralism. Christianity is a religion of grace. And that's why John can go on and say in the second half of chapter 2, verse 1, but if anybody does sin, recognizing that we are weak, recognizing that we are tempted, that we are frail, that we give in to sin. And when we do sin, we're reminded that we have an advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who not only died for us in the past, but lives in the presence, interceding for us before the Father. 
we may remain in fellowship with the living God. It is Jesus who stood in the gap for us, who took our offenses upon himself and continues to intercede on our behalf that we may enjoy the fellowship of God, the forgiveness of our sins, everlasting life through Jesus who became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lastly, verse 2 of chapter 2 declares that Jesus is a propitiation for sins. The NIV translates it an atoning sacrifice. Well, what is propitiation? Propitiation means to pacify wrath or to expiate sin. To assuage and satisfy the wrath of the one offended or to remove the guilt and the stain of sin from the offender. Now, many people in our modern age are offended at the notion that God is a God of wrath, or that somehow Jesus was made an object of his wrath. Well, then we must counter, why then did Jesus die? In fact, for the first thousand years in the church history, Theologians really didn't understand exactly why Jesus did have to die. In fact, the most popular theory in the first millennium is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid a ransom to the devil to redeem the elect from their bondage and eternal condemnation. It wasn't until Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century got the ball rolling that continued to roll and grow through the Reformation era that we begin to understand that Jesus' death served to satisfy God's wrath for upon sinful man. And of course, this was not a new concept. This is, not an unbi- this is a very biblical concept. We go throughout the Old Testament. How many times did Aaron or one of his sons have to turn away the anger of God from Israel? The Bible is very clear that sin arouses the wrath of Almighty God. And yet we must not compare God with the ancient pagan gods because the God, the one true God of the Bible, does not fly off the handle with rage. He is not capricious or arbitrary. His wrath is righteous indignation against real evil, the defiling of his good creation. And unlike the pagan gods who demanded the sacrificing of children and other innocent people, the God of the Bible makes himself the propitiation for our sins in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, man cannot bribe God the way Jacob did it with Esau the way Joseph's brothers tried with Joseph, the second in command in Egypt. Rather, in order to meet the holy requirements of God's law, Jesus was crushed in our place, that we might be spared and live through him. Isaiah fifty-three eleven predicts the ministry of Christ when he says, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus quenched the wrath of God. The only way for God to both remain just 
and to provide mercy for his people was that mercy and justice must meet at the cross and crush the Lord Jesus. It was on the cross that Jesus endured the punishment of our guilt for sin. That which we could not bear, Jesus bore on our behalf. He drank the cup of God's wrath. John Stott writes in his classic work, The Cross of Christ, It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self and his own son when he took our place and died for us. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friend, our greatest privilege as Christians is fellowship with the living God. We have a God who is with us in trials, who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And he is the God who has provided the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the entire world, that all are invited to come. We hear this invitation in Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11, when it says, Let him who walks in the dark who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. We have a choice. We can walk by the light of our own man-made fires or we can walk in the light, God's light, trusting in Christ by faith in his precious blood. On my first trip to Enchanted Rock, when I was about a junior in high school, I was on a youth retreat with another church, and a few of my friends and I decided we'd be cute and steal away in the middle of the night and hike our way over to, from the camp to the dome the magma dome, and, cr- and climb up to the top and sleep there in the night. And of course, we had to walk in darkness so that we didn't arouse the suspicion of the youth leaders. And of course, this was like spring break time, so it was mighty cold at the top of that rock. And the wind was howling, and we didn't last more than about an hour before we crept our way back down the dome and snuck back into camp undetected where there was light and warmth, and safety. Men creep towards the darkness, but are drawn back to the light when they find the safe refuge of Jesus Christ. We may try to walk by the light of our own deeds and suffer harm, like a hike in the middle of the night without any light. And such consequence will be eternal separation from the living God. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, if we walk by the light of Christ, 
and let his word be a lamp unto our feet, then we must live by his grace. Trust in his strength. Allow him to fight our battles, and in doing so, we condemn the world and enjoy sweet intimacy, fellowship with him who has overcome the world and welcomes us into his eternal presence. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we thank you for sending your Son, the light of the world, a propitiation for our sins, that we might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven, that we might walk in the light, in fellowship with the living God. We thank you. We bless you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.